Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. I'm a brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on the show, we have interior designer and business owner, Betsy Helmuth from New York City. By the end of the show, see if you can count how many clients she's worked with in the past. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Betsy Helmuth. Okay, guys, welcome all the way from New York City, Betsy Helmuth. She's the owner of Affordable Interior Design and a nationally celebrated interior designer. She's appeared on the Today Show, HGTV, DIY Network, CBS, NBC, and in dozens of magazines and newspapers. She penned a popular design book, Big Design, Small Budget, Create a Glamorous Home in Nine Thrifty Steps, and hosts a weekly home decorating podcast by the same name. Her firm has grown to serve clients in and around New York City and also helps clients virtually in other parts of the country with online classes and a weekly Facebook live chat where she dishes out design wisdom for free. And I have found she even co-starred in a TV commercial for Chase Bank. So Betsy, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Thanks for having me. So Betsy, you were um, on our friend Prescott Perez Fox's show, The Busy Creator, a while back. And so thanks to him for connecting us. Yeah, he's great and always has lots of good advice about podcasting, about graphic arts. He's just a wealth of knowledge. And just coincidentally, he and I got a chance to hang out a little bit last week. So, uh, hey, Prescott, if you're listening. Hey. One of the things that I'm really curious about is I feel like you have a very interesting way of almost productizing and selling the way that you market your design services right on the website and make it really easy for clients to buy. So I totally want to ask you about that. But first, um, my lead-in question is always, tell me about your origin story and how you made it into the world of interior design in the first place. Wow. Well, okay. I'll tell you the origin story. Um, I started my career as a painter. So I was a visual artist. I moved to New York City to be an actress and a painter. And I knew that this was a hotbed of art, but I'd never actually lived here before or even been here as a tourist. So I moved when I graduated from college and I dove right into the world. And that was July of 2001. So Hmm. I didn't know one person. I moved here with three suitcases and angry cat and worked at Planet (laughs) Hollywood while I tried to make all my dreams come true. And then, of course, a couple months later, it was September 11th. And the place where I came to like build all my dreams was literally crumbling before me. I had Mm. no friends except for my fellow waitresses at Planet Hollywood. And I was just out of college. So this was a really eye-opening, harrowing, horrible situation. And of course, I had it pretty good because nothing physically happened to me. I was not below Canal Street, but I was there. Um, witnessing it all from Mm -hmm. Union Square, from another waitressing job I had on the side, and really felt very lost. I felt like neither of those jobs, being an actress or a painter, suddenly felt very important. And I felt like I had to question how I could help New York City. Even in that short time, in those two months, I fell in love with New York City, and I knew that this was the place I'd be living for a very long time. So I wasn't about to leave, even though I'd come from the Midwest, which is, of course, a much Mm. safer or nurturing environment. But I was going to tough it out with this tough city and I was going to do my part to make this city better. But I had no training medically. I had really no training outside of the arts. And I felt like that didn't have an immediate application for helping. So I was really very lost and I really questioned the validity of my dreams for a long time. And basically what I did is I put out in the universe, you know, with the gifts or talents or skills that I have, how can I help the world? And I was kind of my mantra as I moved through this very sad time in New York City. And it came to me sort of just through the universe, just in these subtle ways that 
interior design was something I could be interested in. As I was walking around the city, I was looking in people's apartments. It was a cold, lonely time. And I was looking in people's apartments. I didn't have many friends or connections. And I saw that people, even in wealthy neighborhoods, were living really poorly. They wouldn't have light fixtures that felt warm. They'd be living in this fluorescent blue light. Or I'd peek in their windows and they wouldn't even have a couch in this huge living room. They'd just have a mash of chairs and bad Ikea, Mm -hmm. even in the nicest neighborhoods. And I thought, well, it doesn't have to be this way. Each one of my apartments, I always decorated to the nines with stuff from the dollar store. So I was like, (laughs) I can make your apartment fabulous with just $100. Let me in. So from that kind of searching, both peeping Tom searching and soul searching after 9-11, I realized that perhaps my way to help the world is to make people's homes a better place. Because after 9-11, a lot of us spent a lot of time at home, many restaurants, bars, things were closed. And Mm -hmm. so we spent more time than ever sort of alone in our spaces. And if you don't feel comfortable in your home, my home was really a nest for me during this dark time. And I made it so fabulous with literally stuff from the dollar store. Um, If your home doesn't feel like that, no matter if you're a New York City millionaire, you're going to feel bad. You're not going to be grounded. You're not going to want to go home. Mm. So I wanted people to have that safe place to land in a relatively unsafe world. And that's how things began. And my mission really is to change lives. People think about throw pillows. People think about dining tables and they think about them as aesthetic things, pretty things. I think about them as things that will change the dynamic of your household, your family. It will affect how quickly you want to come home, how long you want to snuggle, how long you want to stay curled up, how much you want to entertain. I see your home as something that really impacts a lot of facets of your life. So there you go. Speaking of the uh, the peeping thing, I was <laughs> peeping a little bit on your website. So I have a little bit of an idea about what the affordable interior design company is like, but um, tell our, our listeners kind of your size and and how you're staffed and and how you're set up today. So we have four designers who are freelancers. So basically I give them projects and dispatch them, tell them what to go, give them a dossier on the client. And then we have these flat rate plans that they then execute. We have one handyman and we have two virtual assistants and the virtual assistants help with content creation, social media, ordering for our clients, lots of different facets. Currently we're expanding, so I'm hiring a PR person as well as um, an office manager and some more designers. Very cool. And so tell me about, you know, obviously you could staff up with people full-time or expand your network of freelancers, but but why do you think that size has, has worked for you and that's kind of met your growth needs? Well, I mean, I think I should have been more ambitious with my growth needs, but one of my problems as a business owner is that I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. I expect that people will get a very high level of service and I hold my designers to that. So in order to maintain that quality control, I've really prevented myself from expanding in a large way. So it has its pros and cons, but for me, it's just been how it is that I've hired small so that I could really monitor the output and make sure that it's up to our standards. So you can see we have over a hundred impeccable reviews online, but that's come at the cost of growth, I must say. Well, um, I can certainly relate to the, uh, perfectionist tendencies. That's, uh, and I, I think there's a lot of designers who maybe have that blessing or curse, but, um, maybe yeah. just in particular to how you spend your day, you know, our, our listeners are often curious how people kind of split things up. So how much of your time is spent doing actual design or meeting with a client, or I, you know, see that you're a pretty active writer, podcaster, you know, how would you, how do you split up those hours and maybe what's an average day or week look like for you? Well, the thing I love about my job is that there is no typical Uh, my designers, we meet with between three and six clients a week. I personally designed for over 1500 clients and in New York city, everybody's interesting. Like 
It's really hard mm-hmm. to find somebody who's boring and living in New York City because you have to pay so much that you've got to get a good hustle going. There's got to be <laughs> something interesting about you. Even people who have like a large trust fund and are just sitting around are really interesting in New York City. So uh, I see clients about one day a week. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, set aside a Wednesday. Wednesday is what I call dream day. And it's a day when I work on my dreams, my goals, what I love to do. As you'll remember from my origin story, I was also an actor when I moved here. And so I love to perform. I love to podcast. I love to Facebook Live. And all of that takes place for me on Wednesdays on my dream day. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm talking to you on a Wednesday. Later, I'll be Facebook living at four o'clock every Wednesday. And my podcast releases Big Design Small Budget every Wednesday. So I really devote Wednesdays to cultivating my personal passion projects. And then the other days, I must admit, I'm kind of in the muck and mire of admin. So I answer a lot of phone calls. I answer a lot of emails. I do a lot of organic PR in terms of reaching out to press, I do not have a PR background, so I do it in sort of a homespun way, but it's really yielded great results. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because I find that, you know, people in these media outlets don't always want to be reached out to in a professional way. They're kind of sick of just hearing from PR people who don't have that investment or that personal expertise. So hearing from the expert directly can be really exciting for them, especially because I love to be creative. So I'm always churning out new tip lists. I'm always thinking of topical things that I can bring up and pitch to them, things I haven't seen, things I want to read about, things people ask me about. So the other days of the week, I really am in the muck and mire of admin. I'm trying to pull myself out of that by hiring virtual assistants and now in-person assistants, but I'm reaching out to PR people. I'm answering the phones. I'm answering emails. The good thing is that I really am left-brained and right-brained, so I get excited about you know creating a spreadsheet, but it's not <laughs> my forte. Um, so I find myself wearing a lot of hats as a small business owner, pretty much everyone, if you have a business under 20 employees, everyone does a lot of different things Mm -hmm. or needs to be open to multitasking. And as the owner, I personally feel like I have to know everybody's job. I have to have done it before I can outsource it. Mm, Yep. So let's just say after 12 years, I have done it all. And while I think other people could do it better, at least I have some knowledge of every different role in my firm. So I know that you've worked with a mix of residential and business clients. And I even understand perhaps some super secret celebrities who are not allowed to talk about. But I'm I'm curious, just in general, between those three different types of clients, perhaps, what do you think makes for a really great client for your company? The thing that makes for a really great client is someone who really sees the value in the change. I love a client who comes to me with problems, like my home is cluttered, or I feel highly disorganized and I just can't get on top of my day to day, or I can't manage all the clothes in my house. Somebody who has real tangible problems is the first step to a great client. And then the second part of a great client is being open to implementing solutions because we're going to brainstorm with you. We're going to collaborate with you. We're not just going to tell you what to do. We're going to mold the solution to your lifestyle, but then you actually have to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And by doing it, then you can call me and say, Betsy, that just changed my whole life. Uh, so that's exciting. But I find that the clients who aren't in desperate need, the clients who don't come to me with problems, while they're still going to get a beautiful outcome, there's not that gratitude. There's not that shift in experience. And like I said, I really go into this to change people's lives. I would love to make your space look pretty. I want to put that bow on top, but I really want to change your life. And so when I get that feedback that this pillow has caused us to lay on the couch more, to connect more, that dining table fits us all now and we're comfortable and we stay longer at the table and talk. I mean, that's what's rewarding for me. That's what makes for a good client for me. And then you've, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, have generally published your pricing. So I'm curious, 
how that came to be as a strategy and, and how that's working for you. One thing that really bugs me in the arts is that it's so nebulous. People put out, you know, these are the 20 things I can do because I'm a creative expert, but then they won't tell you how much it's going to cost. And the reason we don't as artists is because we genuinely don't know how long it's going to take us. Some projects take me two hours and some projects take me 20 hours. And it's hard for me to know in advance which project will be which. And that bugs me as a consumer because I grew up poor, like show me the money. How much is this going to cost me? Can I afford it? I moved to New York and worked at Planet Hollywood. I mean, I am all about the budget. So I just don't like working with companies who don't tell me how much it costs. So I came up with a flat rate plan. In fact, seven flat rate plans that we use at my office so that people know immediately, you know, we say we're going to find six to eight furnishings for you in one hour. Is that the case? Do we find six to eight furnishings in one hour every time? No, we are not robots. Hmm. But sometimes it takes me 45 minutes to source six to eight items. And sometimes it takes me three hours to source six to eight items. And it basically just works out in the wash. And I price accordingly. So that the average of that almost always comes out in my favor. But I want somebody to say, I know what I'm getting. I know if it's gotten delivered in terms of the results. And I feel great that my expectations were met. And a lot of people call me and call our firm because they couldn't find that at other places. They were like, the place told me I was going to have to buy 10 hours of design time, but I don't know what the outcome will be. I hate that crap. Like, tell me what I'm going to get. <laughs> I want to go to Taco Bell and get my value meal. I want the hard shell. I want the soft shell and the soda. I'm out. No surprises. That's what I want to give my clients. Hard shell, soft shell, soda. <laughs> and everyone's happy. Love it. Interior design is a taco. Right. I happen to love Taco Bell. So I, that just came in. <laughs> <laughs> well, since Taco Bell has so much variety. Tell me about the kinds of projects or maybe the kinds of things that you find yourself most excited to get out of bed and do every day. Like what, what are your personal favorite things to work on right now? I love my podcast. It's a great outlet for me to share my tips. I just have sort of a mission that I'm very transparent in my life with the packages, of course, and my design work, but also with my tips, I want people to be able to design on their own too. And with anything, I just think that there's so much value in complete transparency. So I really try and be that transparent voice on my podcast. A lot of people think that design is something that you have to have an innate gift. You have to have a special eye for design or a special talent. And I totally think that's untrue. I work off of formulas. So my entire design philosophy is based around formulas and you can learn interior design and it's pretty easy. Um, I want to take the mis mystique out of it basically. So mm. I love doing that with both my podcast and my book, but I would say the thing that I'm most excited about right now is growing my business as an entrepreneur. You know, I designed 1500 spaces over the course of 12 years. I mean, I have done it all. I've seen it all from celebrities to hoarders to you name it, to melt cartons and shopping the sale bin at target. I have done it. So that still provides me with some inspiration, but my newest challenge, the thing that I'm really learning about right now is how to be a great entrepreneur, how to strategize, how to maximize what I offer, because as artists or as designers, we can get so locked into trading hours for dollars. And there's a cap at how much you could make when you do that. You know, like I'm going to mm -hmm. design your website. I can right. only design so many websites in one day. So the cap on what I can make is very clear. So how do we take this kind of service-based business and monetize it in a way that can really scale? So that's my new challenge. And that's what really gets me revved up. So tell me about, I want to talk a little bit more about the book and your podcast. Which came first? The book. So the book came first. Uh, I have had 1,500 clients and that's like on the low end. I think I'm probably closer to like 2,500 right now. I stopped counting at a certain mm -hmm. point. But um, I have had a lot of clients and my clients in New York are endlessly interesting. And one of them was a book agent and she's like, you need a book. 
And I worked with her about four times at different apartments and on her mom's apartment and on her boyfriend's apartment. And so she's like, let's get you a book. So she got me a book deal and we did the book and she was like, you should get into podcasting. And so I was like, okay, let's try this thing. But first I actually started as a podcast fan. So she said, do you listen to podcasts? And I was like, no, not really. And then Mm -hmm. I started listening to podcasts and now I'm like addicted and I eat them like potato chips. I cannot stop (laughs) listening to podcasts um, about all different topics. And so then I was like, well, I have something to say and I have a performance background and it could be a great marketing vehicle for my company. So there you go. So that happened. So how long did the, did the book go from the, Hey, you should write a book to actually writing one? A year. So the first pitch we sent out to the first publisher, they said yes, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. It was awesome. It was really cool. And then I had taught interior design classes for many years. So I had basically been saying this book over and over and just taught them independently. You know, so I would put a thing on Groupon. I would sell a class for 40 people. They would all meet me at a classroom I rented in Manhattan And we would have a lecture with PowerPoint and questions. Mm -hmm. So from there, I really created all the content for my book. I basically had it all outlined just from my classes. And so I put that in the book and then there we go. So it took a year. The hardest part with the book was the images, uh, paying the photographer, going to the different places, getting those professional images. That was the most labor intensive and draining portion of writing the book. I actually wrote the book in one month. I'm a person who sort of likes to, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to jump all in. And I just was like, I can't write this book in drips and drabs over a year. So Mm -hmm. I just hunkered down in a coffee shop, turned off the phone for an entire month and wrote a book. How about, um, the podcast? How long has that been going now? Two years. I think we're on episode 120. Oh, very nice. It is nice, but I mean, it's a little bit difficult um, in terms of monetizing and marketing. I have not found it to be a great vehicle for either of those things. It's really at this point a passion project. So I need to shift and find other ways to make it more marketable because after two years, you've really discussed everything. I've really shared with you (laughs) almost everything. So now I have to find new ways to keep it fresh and interesting for myself. Maybe you experience that. I'm not sure. Yeah. And, you know, we, um, our show maybe obviously is very guest driven. So although we ask a lot of the same questions between guests, um, you know, it seems like the conversation is different because of, you know, the subject matter or the person or the, the particular vein of design that we're talking about that day. And that's the highly repeatable way to do it, of Mm -hmm. course, because when you're relying on your own depth of knowledge or expertise, there is a point at which you don't know nothing more. (laughs) So, so after hours of talking about Ikea and window treatments, now I've kind of shifted and I, I usually have like a listener on who I'll redesign one of their rooms on live on the air um, where I take a lot of questions. I love giving advice, as you can tell. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm highly opinionated. So I love giving (laughs) advice and telling people what to do. That's probably a really good uh, attribute to an interior designer since you, I would come to you and say, what should I do if you said, I don't know, (laughs) I'm not sure that would help very well. People like the advice. Yeah. And you know, you have to, I used to be a little more heavy handed than I am now. Now it's just really a suggestion, but, um, I'm very clear in my feelings. So what about your, um, your online classes? So I saw that on your website as well, that you have a couple different packaged offers, or you can have just a single class. Um, how long have you been doing that? What was the inspiration there? So uh, as I mentioned, I was teaching those in-person classes in the city and they were a huge hit. They were selling out. They were really busy. A lot of those people would translate to clients after the class. But then I had a couple of kids and I was teaching those classes at night and night times were no longer times I was free. Night times were now times that were most important that I would Mm -hmm. be home dinner and with my babies. And so I realized that it was no longer sustainable to do those in-person classes once a week or even once a month. So instead I took all that content and put it online. 
So the, the same exact classes that I used to teach in person, but now people can take them whenever they want from the comfort of their computer screen. They can watch it as many times as they want. They have those slides with all the details. So they can take copious notes. And then I do have a package where they can buy the classes with my book. So that way they don't have to take the notes um, and they can still get the value. But um, again, it's like as an artist trying to find ways to monetize that are outside of trading time for dollars. So trying to productize what you do. So I needed to productize my expertise. And mm -hmm. having a book and having these classes has been a great way to kind of sell myself without selling my time. So have those online classes and the book proven to be better revenue generators or better lead sources? Or how how have those aided in, in your ability to market yourself or get new work? So the in-person classes were really great about getting us clients because people felt that immediate connection to me. I'd already answered a couple of their questions and they felt excited. They felt like I already knew their project. So they were really ready to just continue that personal experience. The online classes do not translate to clients as directly, but of course the sale there is great. Right. So I've sold a package of classes that really cost me nothing once I've got the initial investment of creating the class and putting it online. Yeah. So it's a one time cost that can repeatedly reap value. Whereas those in-person classes, they were bringing in those in-person clients, but it was taking a lot of my time. Cool. So um, do you expect that you'll keep adding to those courses just for a variety or is that kind of the, the set? So I actually have, I just taught a master class in the city in February, a seven hour class. Can you imagine? Oh, man. Um, That's like a yes, That's a pretty intense class. And it was an all day experience with gift bags and breakout sessions. And that was really interesting. And I'll probably be breaking that into online classes as well. Hmm. Cool. So I definitely foresee other classes, but it's not easy to create this content uh, and put it out there too. I mean, it takes time to create that PowerPoint, to record, to do a video intro and outro, and then you have to pay as well. So there's that initial investment in creating those online classes of both time and energy that is a little bit expensive, but ultimately over time it can reap that reward. So I'll probably do a couple more, but then I think the core in my business, as I said, I rely on formulas. So once you know the formulas, there's really not much more to know. Mm -hmm. There's always trends and tips and things are changing slightly. But once you know the basics, you can design your home pretty quickly. So I think five classes is going to get me where I need to go and going to really give people who want to learn more that foundation that they'll need to just fly. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe the answer is all the things we've been talking about, but I'm, I'm curious if there are other ways that you market yourself and your business. Oh, well, I love press, right? And press is not necessarily a marketing tool, but it's a legitimacy tool so that when people land on your website and they see all these amazing press badges, they're like, wow, this girl, this firm, this place is amazing. So I definitely do that. I do rely on that social media in terms of the Facebook live events. Um, you know, at this point I don't really market, which is not advisable <laughs> for other <laughs> business owners. You right. know, the key is to get that nice steady growth. And instead I coast a little bit, as you can see, I'm only hiring when there's need rather than pushing that need through strategic marketing. Mm -hmm. So that's a flaw that I personally have as a business owner is, you know, not thinking about that strategic growth and encouraging it. But I have so many other dreams that I want to accomplish just personally that it's hard to balance it all because I want to be seen as an expert and I want to have that podcast and I want to do those Facebook lives and these kinds of things. And it prevents me from prioritizing marketing. How Let's did that how did that Chase Bank commercial come to be? 
So, you know, I've worked with 1,500 clients. Have I said that enough? Plus, so <laughs> all my clients know something. So one of my clients worked for an advertising firm and she's like, I'm looking for a small business to spotlight who uses this credit card. Do you happen to use this credit card? And everything I have is through Chase, be it my mortgages, my all my accounts are through Chase. So yes, I had that credit card and she was like, perfect. Um, so it was a really great thing because I was already super passionate about the card. Like I got the card because it had the amazing rates for small businesses. And I knew all the stats already because of course I'd chosen from lots of different card options. So it was exciting because I have a hard time being inauthentic. So I was very passionate about the card already. So I was like, wow, mm. I get to create a commercial. I get to meet a mentor of mine, Marcus Limonis. Yeah. And I get to talk about a card that I already use and love. Uh, yes, please. Where do I sign up? And I had a blast. I had like my own trailer. I got to meet the prophet. Uh, it was great. So I was struck when I watched the commercial since that was really my first um, exposure to, you know, before you'd even talked, I was seeing you perform in that. So now that you say you've got an acting background, it all, it all makes sense. I was thinking, wow, that's cool that they were able to like get you to look natural and to <laughs> just seem like if people would have guessed, they probably would have thought, oh, that's an actor. That's not a, that's not a real professional, but I think you did a great job with it. Well, thank you. And, you know, I was shaking like a leaf because I was super excited to work with this guy that I, you know, as an entrepreneur junkie that I really revere from CNBC. But, um, yeah, it does help to have that performance background, especially if you want to put yourself out there as an expert in your field. You know, taking those performance classes or getting comfortable making speeches is really imperative to set yourself apart as a creative expert. Mm -hmm. Because when people call me like the Today Show or something like that, I mean, certainly there's always a touch of nervousness, but I can just jump in to a comfort level of sorts with performance. And that's really why I started the Facebook Lives is because I found that with audio, I was super comfortable on a podcast, but I found with video, sometimes I'd get a little scared. So I was like, all right, here we go. Let's do a weekly Facebook Live so you can watch yourself on camera, which is petrifying and get over that crap. So, you know, think about things that will challenge you and put those own obstacles in your way so that you can increase your skill set. You know, I wanted to really talk in sound bites when I was talking to the press, and that's why I created a podcast. I was like, let me, sometimes I can wander a little bit with my answers. Sometimes I can repeat myself a little bit. I wanted to get tighter, more specific. And now I'm a soundbite automaton. <laughs> So which you can use that as a soundbite. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Maybe we should play that at the at the start of the show. Yeah. So which which came first? Was it some of these like Today Show and HGTV kind of appearances, or was it the commercial? Well, the commercial. I I want to be really specific about something because people and I was under this very poor misconception as well. People think that being on these shows having a commercial will get you clients. And I know I've already mentioned this, but let me just stress, it did not get me any clients. The day I was on the Today Show, I told my entire staff, I said, we are sitting by the phones. Our phones are gonna blow up. People are gonna call me like crazy after I talk to Hoda and Kathy Lee, and we will not be able to handle the influx of customers. Nobody called. <laughs> Nobody, not one oh, person. Man. And then the next week, one person called and said, my mother saw you on the Today Show. And that is the only client we ever got directly from being on the Today Show with millions of viewers. Mm. I did that commercial. No one has ever mentioned that they saw me and hired me because of the commercial, ever. So these things do not lead to clients. These things lead to legitimacy. You know, if you splash it on your website, it looks cool. It makes you look cool. But it is not going to bring you clients. It is not a marketing strategy. Yeah. So none of those big splashy events have led to clients. Do you know what leads to clients in the press is local stuff. Like I was in my local paper because I opened a storefront in Westchester and that got me three clients. It's that local stuff where they could directly call you. They could directly come in. You're right in their face. You're in their area. 
it's top of mind to think of hiring you. It's not top of mind to think, oh, I'm watching the Today Show while I make breakfast. So the local stuff is where you're really going to find money. So are there, turns out you've worked with over 1,500 clients. I, I don't know if you <laughs> knew that or not, but. Yeah, um, just sure. You're really retaining this stuff. <laughs> like a steel trap. I'm curious if there are particular types of projects that you haven't had a chance to do out of those first 1,500 that is like a dream job for you. So what, what are some of the things you're still looking forward to tackling? Well, I've really done it all. Penthouse on Park Avenue, flat in London with an indoor pool, um, public housing for people who are below the poverty line. I've really done it all. I think one of the challenges that I'm looking forward to exploring more is more of this philanthropy work. Mm. I find that I make a difference in everyday lives by giving people throw pillows and giving them larger dining tables to feel more comfortable to sit with their family. But now it's time to expand that uh, as I grow and become more fiscally sound, you know, as, as my business becomes more of a revenue generator for me, I'll have mm -hmm. the time to really dig in. I really wanted to make a larger impact. And I feel like, you know, I was approached recently by a women's shelter and I would love to design a women's shelter. Um, I was recently approached by a boxing bring that kind of gives boxing programs to um, impoverished youth and they wanted a new look. So these kinds of things right now, I'm so in the day to day and so inextricably linked to my business because I do so much of the admin. But as I hire, I want to branch out and start doing some of these more charitable projects that have a even greater impact. Mm. That's really cool. So since you have kind of done everything, I'm curious if as you look around, and see other trends or things that are happening? Like, what are some of the design things that you see out there that are kind of driving you nuts right now? Like just things that bug you in a, in a not so good way. <laughs> things that drive me nuts. Hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. Because, you know, in my business, I design for so many different styles, so many different types of people, be it a grandma in Austin to a young single professional living in the financial district. So things I thought I would never use or things that I think are really like I, I never could think of a place to use that rug that I saw in Overstock ever. The next week I'll find myself recommending it to a client who has a really specific taste and I'll find myself loving it for that client. Whereas I would hate it in general for myself or even for that financial district client, something that's bothering me. Hmm. You know, what bothers me a little bit is when people aren't realistic about their taste levels and their budgets. So a lot of my clients are in New York. They're surrounded by people who have luxury and people who make a lot of money. So they find that they have high-end taste levels, but then of course they're operating with a small budget and they can't reconcile those two. Mm -hmm. So as a design firm, we don't take commission off these items. We don't pressure our clients to make higher purchases, more expensive things to, to gravitate towards those because we don't have a personal investment in what they spend, mm -hmm. but we want them to have that great look. I'm trying to think of something that bothers me. I I've learned to be really flexible. So over the years of designing with so many different personalities, sort of my harder edges have been a little worn off. Mm -hmm. so things rarely bother me. It bothers me that even the most expensive paints aren't very durable in terms mm -hmm. of stains and fingerprints. There we go. How about that? <laughs> that really yes. bothers me. That keeps me up at night. I spent so much money on the highest level paint for my house because I just didn't want to have to deal. My kids are little. They're putting sauce on the walls. I wanted that paint that's marketed as like it can withstand whatever. I bought that paint and it cannot <laughs> much. So that makes me really upset. I need some five-year-old repellent for our walls as well. It's just Handprints and, and footprints, it turns out, on our walls. Yes. You know what I wind up saying to my family? Don't touch the walls. <laughs> or 
which is maybe not the most practical <laughs> advice, but it's really weird to even be saying like, don't touch the wall. Don't touch that wall. When we have playdates, just touch anything but the walls. So yeah, you know what else bugs me? Okay. Now you've got me on a roll. Solid carpets, solid mm. area rugs, because no matter what the color is, be it navy or white, they are going to show every stain, every imperfection. I hate solid area rugs. Mm. That's a good one. There you go. Now you've got me on a tear. There you go. You better ask another question or I will just keep going. So here's here's the maybe more positive companion to that. And it's kind of the theme of the show. So of all the different designer types that we've talked to, um, this seems to be the recurring theme. So this could be something in design or could be just something in life. But I'm curious what you are most obsessed with right now. You know what one of my clients said to me the other day? She is in the entertainment world and she's like, Betsy, you are a tastemaker. The things that you say are trends are the things that will be trends. The things that you put out there and say, this is what's hot. This is what I'm loving is what people will love. But as a designer who doesn't do any custom, we don't work with any custom. We only deal with retail. I just love what's already out there. So I don't really start trends. I just pick and choose from what's available because I can't really reinvent the wheel since I'm not doing custom. I have to choose from what's available. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing about my personality is that I love a constraint. I love the tighter the budget, the more fun I'm going to have designing your space. Mm -hmm. The fewer stores I have to work with, the less selection, the more challenging it is for me and the more inspiring. So I love budgetary constraints. I love style constraints. I love people making me feel a little bit uncomfortable because that's where I grow. You know, when you have an endless budget, when you have a client who can spend whatever and is totally open on their style, the palette is too open. The canvas mm -hmm. is too blank. I don't even know where to begin. When they give me these tight, tight parameters, I can just play. So I really like boundaries. I really like people telling me this is what I'm into. Because you know what I think about interior design? Because I came from the world of painting, so maybe this will relate back to some of your visual artists. I think of my clients as a still life. So do you remember mm, in mm -hmm. art school when you had to like make a drawing of apples and they put the bowl of apples in front of you and you would sketch the apples. Well, I found that I was spending hours and hours working on these apples and apples did not interest me at all, right? I have no personal connection to these apples. I didn't pick them. I don't want to eat them. But in order to spend hours on this drawing or painting, I would have to fall in love with these apples. I'd have to fall in love with the way the peel catches the light, the way the green turns to red, the way the stem has a curl. I would have to fall in love deeply with these apples in order to care about the piece I was creating at all. That's what I do with my clients. I think of them as like a still life. So when I meet my client, Joe, I have no feelings about him. It's just like watching him on the street, no connection. I have to find a way to fall in love with Joe, to find an aspect of Joe's personality that inspires me endlessly so that I can create a, a place that truly feels like Joe. Mm -hmm. even though I don't really know him. So I have to get to know him quickly, which is why we have a questionnaire we make every single client fill out. I have to have a shorthand way to know so much about Joe that I can be inspired by him endlessly and create a space that truly feels like him. So that's the challenge I find with every client is I try to get to know them quickly and deeply so that I can reflect what I see back to them and they can feel like it's uniquely theirs. I think that's, that's really cool. Well, and that's what keeps it interesting for me, because if I was just replicating designs I like, well, that would be really boring because a lot of designers that I had worked for in the past, you know, people call them and want that famous designer's aesthetic. Like I want my place to look like Nate Berkus's place in House Beautiful, mm -hmm. or I want my place to look like that famous celebrities that I saw on Entertainment Tonight. And that is not interesting. Um, what's interesting is you. How can I make this space feel like you. That's interesting to me. What happens, you know, when it comes to inspiration for an interior and you're just not getting anything out of our friend Joe, like where, where else do you look for inspiration or what else kind of helps you keep it fresh? 
No, I get everything from Joe. So I have 20 questions that I have my client fill out on a form before I'll meet with them. Every client must fill it out. That's how I know I have over 1500 clients. Um, so every <laughs> client must fill out this form and it tells me everything I know. And certainly the questions have changed over time. But if I ever feel like, just like with those apples, if I ever feel like, you know what, I'm stuck or you know what, I'm just still not feeling inspired. I go more deeply into that questionnaire. I look more deeply at those answers. I maybe email him and ask him a couple more questions about the questions that were in the questionnaire, just like I would do with that Apple still life. I just look more closely. All the answers are there. Joe is endlessly interesting. I just have to find my way in. So, you know, I always just look more deeply into the client, but also I merge that with their budget because even if Joe is endlessly interesting and loves restoration hardware and Ralph Lauren, if he only has $3,000, well, we're going to have to take Joe and, you know, <laughs> look through a new lens. <laughs> right. uh, so I find the budget when layered with the personality gives me everything I need. So if you weren't doing interior design tomorrow, what do you think you'd be doing? You mean like if this weren't my career? Yeah. If you, if you decided to up and shift everything tomorrow, what, what would that, what would that new career be? You know what? I've thought about that because people have asked to buy my company and as an entrepreneur, I could potentially be down with that. <laughs> We're getting sure. to the point where I could make a pretty penny. So I've had investors interested. I've, pe I've had people just outright ask me how much to buy your brand and then, of course, when somebody buys your company, you can't go and start a competitor. I would have to shift and do something completely different. Can my answer be, I don't know? I really have given it thought because I do want to sell my company one day. Um, I would probably go back to painting. Hmm. I have really been missing it. And when I paint, I am a photorealist when I paint. So it takes forever. <laughs> My paintings really take me a long time and I'm fastidious and they take up a lot of my energy. And plus painting just takes up a ton of room. Like you have paints everywhere and mm, you really right. spread out. So I find it to be a really um, overwhelming endeavor. But I would go back to that for a while because now, especially now, I know all sorts of artwork that my clients would love that I could easily create. Oh, please. I would have a rockin' Etsy shop. Um, because I know what I'm always looking for for my clients that I just can't find. And I could churn those out all day. Do you ever do um, custom work or paintings for one of your clients for one of their spaces? I did at the beginning. And that's actually how I got into it is my painting clients had bad house. Anyway, I found myself making furniture recommendations and artwork recommendations as I was creating artwork hmm. for my clients. And then I was like, wait, there's something else here. Um, no, I don't, I don't do that now. I have no interest in doing that. Like I said, painting for me is super immersive and I just don't have room in my brain to be an entrepreneur, to be a mom, to be a designer. And I really get my artistic kick from designing. So it's truly my outlet. Um, so I already am really getting my, my artistic stuff out by just designing. But if that weren't available to me anymore, I think I'd go back to painting. So what is, um, maybe a favorite piece of advice that you've received, or maybe one of your favorite pieces of advice to pass along to other young designers? Well, I would say to find your tribe, find people who are like-minded, whether you're trying to really market your work or whether you're trying to just become a better whatever type of art you do, find people who are in the same echelon as you or maybe a little higher and really use them as a support network. The arts can be such a lonely or um, individual endeavor but sometimes we forget to reach out. Sometimes we forget that it can take a village to be successful. I know as an entrepreneur and interior designer, I just did my own thing for so long, not even knowing that I could reach out, not even knowing that there might be other people who would want to talk to me about what they're learning or be really generous with their information and advice. 
So I would say find like-minded people, whether it's a meetup or whether it's an online community. I belong to a small business group called Savor the Success, and it's just so great to have like-minded people going through similar challenges that I can not only ask advice from, but also give advice and share what I'm learning. It just makes the experience richer when you're not doing it alone. Yeah, that's fantastic. So Betsy, before we let you go, it's been fantastic talking to you, learning about your process and your 1500 clients. Um, <laughs> but maybe before we close out here, tell us about where everybody can connect with you and, and to be able to do all the things, find the book, find the podcast. So give us the rundown. So you can find all the things um, on my company website, affordableinteriordesign.com. And then my podcast and book are bigdesignsmallbudget.com. So that should take you to almost everything about me. And certainly they could email me directly at betsy at affordableinteriordesign.com. Excellent. Well, Betsy, it has been fun chatting with you today. And uh, maybe we'll have to get you back on the show after you've got another either uh, 1,500 clients or maybe another Chase commercial under your belt. Oh, hello. Well, we'll <laughs> see, Josh. We'll see. Um, yes, I would love to come back. I've had a great time today and I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on here and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's episode number 82 in the books. For all of today's show notes, head over to obsessedshow.com. And if you click on episodes, you will find we have the podcasts now directly embedded in the episode page. So you can not only listen from iTunes, but also through the website. Of course, still go to iTunes, hit that subscribe button and give us a rating and review to help other people find the show. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon. Visit milesherndon.com to learn more. Tweet to me, I'm at Josh Miles or at Obsessed Show and let us know who you think we should interview next. Obsessed Show has been edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit brassybroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.